Hey, Warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah. We are the hosts of The Unqualified Therapist. We are not here to give you advice. We are here to tell you our stories, share your stories, and bring on the professionals from time to time. Mental health is complicated, and we know that from our personal experience. We believe in professional therapy. Both Sarah and I use that on our own healing journeys. But we also know it isn't one size fits all. The stigma surrounding mental illness can make us feel alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. And you're listening to The Unqualified Therapist Sync. I want them to laugh, but I would prefer we start this way. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Okay. So if you show up, that's what you're going to hear at our live <laughs> show. Yes, I can't wait. It's going to be so amazing. And we've got lots of friend friends joining us and we can't stop planning it. So we just keep talking about more things that we can do while we're there. So you're going to have to come because there's going to be so much stuff uh, for you to do. And if you are an introvert and don't feel like talking to anybody, don't worry. We've got you covered. Like legit. I just came up with things that introverts can do (laughs) because here's the deal. Like, let's say you can't find anyone who wants to go with you. Um, That's scary enough on Mm -hmm. and of itself. So don't worry. I got you. There will be like, you can just like take your little bingo card and go do your thing. You're an extrovert. Go drink your beer and eat your cheese and talk to everybody. Do whatever you want. But mm-hmm. I feel like I always, I prefer a job if I'm like, I don't know. I want to, I want to have a, a purpose instead of aiming. Like mindlessly like roaming is just potential for people to start talking to me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> aimlessly roaming. That's what I meant. Like, you know, cause yeah. you're like, oh God, duh, duh. no, just kidding. I'm not that bad. <laughs> Uh, it's like Frogger, but with people. <laughs> You're just going to weave in and out and be like, oh, no. Oh, my gosh. So if you Amy guys. gives you a blank stare if you're talking to her, don't be offended. I'm really good <laughs> at things like this. out. I, will, I, I prep for a while, and then I do recover for a couple of days. Yes. yes. I'll be fine. It'll be fine. You'll see You'll see extroverted introvert um, on Tuesday evening, August 10th from 6 to 9 p.m. At Simply Social in the Waterfront, where you get to take selfies for at least an hour, if not longer, in 13 selfie booths, which is a charge of normally $20 just to do that on its own. So it's a pretty sweet deal of all the things we get to do in those three hours. Yeah, it is. Uh, Yes, you're going to get to do all of those. They have the, what are those things called? The ring lights? And it holds your phone, too? Yeah, you don't even need to bring that. They've got it. I know. They've got them there. And she has told us that every single station is going to have its own ring light. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, you just kind of stick your phone in and take the pick. I know. We felt 
We felt very professional when we were there doing our pictures. We sh- we sure did. We sure did. We pretended like we were somebody. We even did that walk thing. You know, I don't know if you guys oh, ever yeah, watch yeah. reels or like TikTok where they teach you how to like walk. Like you pick up the knee and then you pick up the other knee. And we tried to. <laughs> we tried to make it look as though in the photo we were casually strolling. What you'll notice is that none of those pictures are anywhere because it did not work. You'll, you'll never, you will never <laughs> find never those. You will never see them. I, I am not sure, honestly, if they have changed the selfie booths because I know they do or if they're the same ones. And if they're the same ones, I will just say, be careful getting in the hammock. <laughs> That's all. That's all I'm going to say. Just be careful. Oh and if you get God. injured, you cannot sue us. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, the bruise was so big. It was the it size was so of, um, like a, I think I had to describe before, like a can of pop. Like it was so big. It was big. <laughs> it was big. I feel like it was bigger than that. It was humongous. Oh, it was man. more like a bottle of wine. Yeah, it kind of was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Avery told me that's what color it was. He's like, oh, it, it looks was. like wine. That, that, that's a nice Merlot right there. <laughs> right on your ass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Speaking man, seriously. We really, really hope you will come out and join us. We have um, had the opportunity to uh, interview this week some amazing another amazing reason um, to live in Pittsburgh. Some amazing folks from Pittsburgh. And we're so excited for this episode. And we are excited to continue to share with you all the amazing things that are happening in our city. Yeah. Uh, this the, We have authors of a book called When You Wonder You're Learning. And the book is based off of Mr. Rogers' um teachings and philosophies. Mr. Rogers is from Pittsburgh and the show was taped here at WQED. Um, and it's just, he's, he's a, a Pittsburgh legend, obviously, but he's, you know, known across the country as well. And so these, uh, the authors of the book are here to join us to talk today and they have so many great things to say. The book, I, I mean, I, ended up saying in the beginning of the episode, you guys will hear that it's, you know, I was like, oh, any parents or people with kids in their lives. And then, you know, the more we were talking and Amy's like, oh, no, no, (laughs) this is for everybody. (laughs) And it really is. It's for everybody. It just is going to help me be a better human being. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's for adults just trying to um, either slow down or bring back creativity or kind of shift a little bit, especially after we come out of COVID and all of the things that you thought about and reflected, just that shift that we need to go back to our childlike wonder. Um, So, you know, even more, it's way more than a parenting or a teacher's book. So um, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, Sarah and I, we... Very rarely commit to a reading. (laughs) (laughs) We commit to partial readings. (laughs) Yes, it was excellent. I think you are all going to enjoy it. And it makes us, I don't know, it just makes me feel like I got off the phone just like giddy because I was like, this is great. Like, I'm so happy to know these people. These two um, men are just wonderful. They're doing wonderful things in the world and in our hometown. Yeah. I think one of the favorite things that we talk about in this uh, episode that you guys are going to hear is how deliberate um, Fred Rogers mm. was about yeah. slowing down mm-hmm. and being able to 
come up with your ideas and, and give your brain some space to like breathe and actually think about things. Uh, there's a, a quote from Mr. Rogers about that that says our society is much more interested in information than wonder and noise rather than silence and i feel that we all need a lot more wonder and a lot more silence in our lives so true yeah it was like that that was probably a a big eye-opener for me i think one of the bigger ones yeah, for sure. I think that, and I feel like until we start to like retrain ourselves, we have to keep telling ourselves that every day. Cause you wake up and you immediately go back to your old fast, 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 fast. Yeah. Um, um, ways. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things. And I spe- specifically, I was telling Sarah one thing that I have picked up and used with uh, my son who is five is about being bored and and Mr. Rogers used to say how good that was to be bored mm-hmm. and um, you know Avery forgot I don't know his iPad or something or was dead and I was like well He's like, well, I'm bored. I was like, that's fantastic. And I was like, he's like, why? And he was super interested. He goes, why? And I was like, because it'll make you smarter. He goes, being bored makes me smarter. And I was like, it sure does. I was like, because what yeah. are you going to think about? I said, you have to think about something else and you've got to look out. He's like, all right, I'm gonna watch out the window. And I just, you know, we've lost that. Yeah. I think as adults as well. So the idea of how boredom can, you know, create this different space in your brain for the real ideas and the good stuff to come. So, yeah. And I think, you know, we also talk about in the episode, how people talk to us about being creative and how they wish they were creative. And this, yes, you're going to, if that's one of, if that is you, then you're going to want to listen to this because, uh, they, they will tell you how you can be creative and how all of us really are. We just have to go back and access it again. Yeah. We were all born with it. Exactly. We have to go back and access it. So if you're wondering how to ramp up your creativity, get it back, however you, you know, wish you could do the things that you see other people doing, this is it. They'll, they give some really great tips on how to do that. Yeah. So we're excited for you guys to hear, um, Mr. Ryan Redziski, Redziski and, uh, Greg Bear, the authors of When You Wonder You're Learning. So enjoy guys. Have a great week and go buy your tickets right now to join us on August 10th. (laughs) (laughs) Go to our Instagram. Just click that link there. It's like the very first or second one. Yes. uh, Easy to find. Grab them. All right, guys. Enjoy this episode. It's a good one. Yeah. Peace. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. Today, we have the most amazing guest, and I truly mean that. I'm so excited about this one, and Sarah's going to let you know who they are, and we're going to talk so much about their book and just life in general. Yes. All right, so all you parents and people who have uh, children in their lives, listen up. (laughs) Because <laughs> this is going to be a good one. So uh, grab your grab your popcorn and your wine or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, buckle up. We have with us today Greg Bear. He is a father. He's a children's advocate. And he is the director for the Grable Foundation. Um, that foundation was inspired by Fred Rogers, who is Greg's hero. Um, so we are so excited to talk to him today. And also we have Ryan Radzeski. 
Ryan is a writer and he has a science and education background. He has garnered several, several awards and fellowships. Uh, he's a graduate from Pitt. So we have two local men with us here today, which is amazing. So we are going to be talking to these lovely men today who wrote this great book. When you wonder your learning, Mr. Rogers enduring lessons for raising creative, curious, caring kids. Welcome gentlemen. Thank you. What an honor it is to be alongside both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited about this. So are we. We we feel just as honored. So, um, oh. and I also have to just add in the front end of this that even if you don't have kids and you're not a teacher or anything like that, I felt as an adult, mm-hmm. I picked up some stuff. Um, recently, I have picked up a little bit of my old creativity mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's it can be a book for just about anyone. I agree. And I, I do take back that. Yeah. I mean, that's what it says. And so I, I, but I still think that if I didn't have children and I wasn't a teacher, I think that I would still find so many things in this book inspiring and useful in my current life. Yes. Even so. though I try to incorporate play into my life a lot, um, I don't do it as much as I should. And reading this actually made me step back and rethink that um, philosophy that I try to incorporate. So this book is for anyone. And we're so happy to have you guys here to talk about it with us. Thank you for for saying that. I I think one thing about Fred is that the the things he spoke about, the things Fred was about were so universally human that you're right. It's a book for parents and teachers, but it's it's also a book about, we think, how to live a a more fulfilling life and how to be better to the people around you. Where did the idea come from and how did you two end up working together on it? Well, Ryan and I have worked together for about five years now. Oh, okay. It was probably about three or four years ago that seeing in Fred Rogers the work of a learning scientist, that was our aha moment in recognizing that here was not only a good person who did extraordinary work in serving children and, and families for decades with his production, but really seeing in Fred an engineer who was deliberate about his work and practice, which is relevant because we've had the privilege for almost two decades now of working with educators all across Southwestern Pennsylvania and beyond teachers, librarians, youth workers, after school directors, and others who in many ways are employing the Fred method in their own lives, in their own classrooms, in the, in the spaces that they care for kids. And we call this in this region, remake learning. But it's the idea of connecting what is whole child in support of everything about a kid with what we're learning about learning itself and the learning sciences. And that whole child plus learning sciences equals the Fred method. So the work springs forth from 15 years of efforts to advance innovative and just learning in our region. And then having the clarity a number of years ago to see Fred Rogers as someone who was deliberate about his work and that left blueprints for us about learning that we could articulate and share with caring adults everywhere. Absolutely. When I was reading through, I was shocked to know what what uh, measures he went to to make sure that this work was that the show was exactly what children needed. It was what they how they learned. He worked with psychologists and uh, pediatricians and all of these different sets of people to really understand how children learn. And it was just such a beautiful thing to know that every single week he would take those scripts and he would go and and meet with his mentor Mm -hmm. and make sure that all the songs were in line with 
even being catchy enough and the words were perfect yeah. so that kids would pay attention. And it was just, I was blown away. I had no idea. I mean, the show started the year I was born. Huh. Did you grow <laughs> up on it? I, I did. did. I did too. I did. I grew up yeah. on Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Absolutely. We did too. I also lived in Buffalo for a little bit as a child. So I grew up on, it was Mr. Rogers and it was Mr. Dress Up were the two that I was like, yeah. And, and Romper Room. So those, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably like way too old for no i watched romper. you watch no, I, I watched romper and i also i grew up um part of my life in the new york area and i watched magic garden as well yes so the can- canadian shows that we could get you know <laughs> from being up in in new york that was that was a good time but yeah of, of course as a child i didn't know but even as an adult i've always respected mr rogers i've thought he's this amazing person that i kind of put up on a pedestal and i'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later how his wife says like don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, she does. Uh, I had no clue the work he put into it. I just thought he was this magical being, you know, that like could just do something like this very easily. Well, and yeah, that's what that great happened. learning scientists do. They make it so seamless in a way that yes. you don't recognize it at all. But you mentioned his mentor, you know, that mentor whose name should be well known is Margaret McFarland. Mm-hmm. And she was a premier child development uh, psychiatrist, psychologist of the 20th century. And, you know, you talk about making yourself lucky. Fred Rogers worked not only with her, but had the benefit of of learning from the likes of Benjamin Spock, Eric Erickson. Yes. There was something magic in the water in Pittsburgh in the 1950s yeah. and 60s. And yeah. Fred's work springs forth from the, that pantheon of, of child development specialists of last, of last century. Yeah. That's like the things we read about in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's inc- that is incredible. Um, and it was hard not to, you know, that's what we do. I'm a reading teacher. We make connections. So as I was reading, I was connecting in so many different ways. And um, the way that he al- allowed children to have empathy was the most beautiful thing mm-hmm. I think that he did. And um, a little bit of a side note, he, so when my husband died, we went to the caring place for um, a session and every night was just so hard that we went and I would always read over and over and over his quote that was on the wall. And I just wanted to read that really quickly because it says so much about who he was, about um, your feelings and your emotions and being empathetic. It says, um, It's only natural that we and our children find many things hard to talk about, but anything human is mentionable and anything mentionable can be manageable. The mentioning can be difficult and the managing too, but both can be done if we're surrounded by love and trust. And I just, you know, they, and they showed like how he gave one of the speeches there. So the caring place for anyone who doesn't know in Pittsburgh, and I believe it's in other places is a place for families, specifically the children after they have a significant loss. So he, he has his hand in so many different things. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I learned so much in this book and more depth about how to use his, uh, teaching. So I guess uh, another question I have is how did you break it up? How did you find these six themes? Yeah, it's, it's interesting in that Fred, you know, he, the neighborhood was an educational television program, but it wasn't an educational television program in the sense that he was teaching kids about fractions or he was practicing spelling words. In fact, um, you know, people used to make fun of Fred by kind of mimicking his phrase. Can you say X word? Fred never actually uttered those words. He never helped children pronounce words. So all of this is sort of has been projected onto Fred. 
What Fred was interested in was the the stuff that makes kids that makes their parents too more human. Things like curiosity, things like creativity and, and communication, all of these things that add up to what you just mentioned, that sort of surrounded, being surrounded by a safety net of love. There's a quote in the book of Fred's that says, you know, rather than teaching children facts, he would rather give children the tools for learning. Because if we start with the tools, then children will want to learn the facts. And more importantly, they'll use the facts to build and not destroy. Fred knew that... I academic learning has to be paired with a nurturing of what's best in us. You know, he knew you need one, one without the other is insufficient. You need both to want to raise complete human beings. And I think that is the sort of grounding philosophy from which, from which the neighborhood sprang. Yeah. So you learned so much about Fred Rogers as a person. And I think that it's pretty well known that in real life, he was just as he was on the show, just as kind and caring and loving. Um, I mean, he was, his wife does say he was human and he wasn't a saint, but um, what surprised you the most about what you learned about him during this process? Well, in part, we go back to how deliberate and intentional he was. And as you just noted, Mrs. Rogers her, herself said, no one practiced being Fred Rogers more than Fred Rogers did. <laughs> and um, it's a reminder to us about the practice of our craft and what it is that we do. And it was that deliberate approach and intentional approach that I think um, um, just really stunned us um, as we got the work underway. It's also been incredibly, I think, uplifting, as you described, that you know Fred Rogers was exactly who we thought he was, who we needed yeah. him to be. And as we get a chance to talk largely with folks in the Pittsburgh community, and everyone has a Pittsburgh story of seeing Fred in an elevator or at the bakery or on mm -hmm. the street, and to a person, everyone always describes this really special moment when it was as if Fred wanted to see them, whether he knew them or not and how genuine he was in his interactions. And it just, um, that's sort of a stunning quality as well. And um, it's something I, you know, we should all aspire to. I would say, yeah, just, just to add on to that a little bit, one of the, the great pleasures of, of working on this book was sitting in the Fred Rogers archive in Latrobe, mm -hmm. where at the Fred Rogers Center, they house decades worth of correspondence from, from kids. And in many cases from adults, um, you can see the letters. They have the actual letters in stacks and stacks of boxes there. And the things that people shared with Fred are every bit as heartbreaking as you can probably imagine, every bit as vulnerable as you can probably imagine. Um, there's so much mentioning in there, as you mentioned earlier, kids trying to manage whatever it is that's going on in their lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as you know, as we read more and more of this correspondence and at the same time watched more and more of the neighborhood, you can start to draw through lines between what people were sharing with Fred and what he was doing in the neighborhood. So I think one of the most surprising things to us was beginning to see the neighborhood not as a, a one-way street from Fred to viewer, but much more of a conversation. Fred, even though he couldn't hear his viewers through the television, was always listening. He was always responding. He was always helping children, you know, making their big feelings mentionable. So then they could then help them manage those feelings 
in the neighborhood. It's really incredible to watch the evolution of that in real time by reading through these letters. The the teachings of vulnerability at that yeah, at that time are so important and he did it in such a way that you didn't know he was teaching you to be yeah. vulnerable mm-hmm. and and because he was giving you a safe space to communicate. And that's how you open that door. I love that part of the book. Yes. Where you yes. talked about that the safe space has to be created first. Yes. Before the curiosity. That is so important to mention because mm-hmm. um, that it's it just can't be done automatically. And he did that. Yeah, he did. And he talked about television in some really interesting ways. You know, he he never called it a television program. Sometimes he called it a television visit. You know, and mm-hmm. what what do you do when someone comes to visit? You try to make them feel comfortable. You try to make them feel safe. You try to make them feel nourished. Another thing he called it was an atmosphere. You know, not even a program. It was an atmosphere in which people could feel safe enough to be themselves. Um Without that, yeah, it's it's much harder to nurture those tools for learning, and it's certainly much harder to get to academic learning and things like the facts, all of these things that Fred was trying to build the foundation for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm wondering how, if you can help us to know how we can use these principles to affect change for kids who don't have that environment of safety, who don't have their basic needs met. You know, for example, like in, in lower income areas or in school districts where art programs have been eliminated, um, what can we do as a society to, to help foster that for the kids that don't feel safe enough to access that part of their brains? Well, this is work that we each need to do. And if we're privileged enough to lead professional development or professional learning for educators, whether that's a classroom teacher, an early childhood educator, a librarian, if we're even further privileged to lead a system, um, this is work that we need to do to prioritize and to make clear is critically important to the outcomes we're trying to achieve on behalf of young people, right? So Ryan mentioned that atmosphere for learning. And we all talk about wanting to pursue environments that are creative, curious, collaborative for kids. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that we can't pursue those things unless kids, as you say, feel safe, both physically and psychologically, unless they feel like they belong in that space, unless they feel like their questions are going to be respected and their big feelings are going to be respected. And this goes back to our craft of the work that we do in support of young people. And so it really is a practice behavior. It's a behavior that's prioritized by those by people who hold position of of authority or budgeting or whatever it might be. And for those of us who maybe don't hold those positions to advocate for it again and again and again, that we can't achieve great things for kids unless we make them feel like they belong, they're safe, and they can start to soar. Yeah. And I think that's a top-down thing, right? So Mm -hmm. um, as a teacher, I need to feel that way too, because there's such a slowness in what, in what Fred did. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we've gotten away from in society, in our homes and in the classroom because it's go, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and that's what we're told to do. Get through all this content, blah, 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 all this stuff. When I know that's not what's best, but it's, it's a, it's a challenging, you know, thing to manage on both sides of it. And so, you know, it's a top down thing. Even if you're not in the classroom, wherever you're at, at the top, like you can affect changes for these children by helping the people who are there helping or with the children, spending the time with the children, you know, and giving them that freedom, just like the 
those people are going to then give the kids the freedom to explore and be creative. So yeah, I think that everyone could, I mean, anywhere you are in society, you can have some sort of impact on this. I often, Um, I I sometimes refer to Arthur Ashe. I don't know if he's the originator of this quotation, but I know that he often said, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Yes. And I mention that because in each of the six chapters of our book, we try and give very concrete examples at the end. I love that. It's not at all designed to be parenting for dummies. Like that's not what it is. (laughs) What these examples are, are curated examples from people and organizations that Ryan and I had the privilege of meeting. One of them that we love comes to us from Hedda Sherapin. So Hedda was, is an educator, worked with Fred Rogers from the first day of production in 1968. And she relayed to us this example of going into a classroom and seeing that a teacher had an ASCIT basket, a simple wicker basket, right? She had the basket in front. In her classroom, she had to create an environment where kids comfortably ask questions however on point or off point those questions might be. And she took the time to notice the question, acknowledge it, write it down, put it in the ask it basket, whether or not she was ready to answer, she resisted the urge to answer and said, later, we're going to come back to this and we're going to think about this together. I love that example because it's something that that we can do personally, Mm -hmm. whether it's in our own kitchens or in our classroom or library setting. It's an example of the types of things that if not at a systemic level, we can do in the immediacy yeah. of the environment in which we're working. That's fantastic. I need I one that. in my home because yes. <laughs> we call my daughter the Riddler. <laughs> she does not stop talking like ever. And she asks a million questions in a row and I can't even keep track of all the questions she's asked me to be able to address What a them. great idea though, to have her yes. write them down. So if I have her write them down and put them in a basket or a a jar or something, yeah. then I can come back to them because she'll come in with the most wild questions yeah. in in terms of like completely off the wall and off topic. You're in the middle of something. On. And yes. so, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. even better for you to write down those questions, right? Because then she knows, yes. notice, I mean, she's already asking them, you're doing something right, amazing, right. right? And then she further acknowledges that you acknowledge them. Yes. It's interesting that you brought that up. I think that that nickname, the Riddler, is so funny because there is a, there's a study that we cite in the book. Um, Michelle Chenard, who's a psychologist, recorded four children from the time they were about 14 months old until they were just over five, just to see what it is that kids talk about with their parents when they're left to their own devices. Mm-hmm. And they found, you know, they collected 230 hours of conversation that these four kids were asking on average, a hundred questions per hour. <laughs> per hour. And yet, oh, at the yeah. same time, if you look at some of the field research, uh, you know your average public school classroom. Sometimes you hear two to five or even zero questions in that same time span. So, and again, that's not a knock on teachers. I was a teacher. You have a lot of things you have to get through. Yeah. But how do we bridge that gap between the inherent creativity, the inherent yes. curiosity that kids bring to us? And all the other things, the, all the other goals and objectives we need to meet. It's really hard work. That's why I love things like Greg mentioned, the ask it basket, because it's a practical strategy that even if you're busy in the moment shows kids that their curiosity has value. Kids have to know that their questions matter. And, um, you know, Rogers always made space for that. Yeah. There was another a study as well, because you said inherent curiosity, and I love that because an inherent creativity, mm-hmm. because we'll have people say to us, even they'll be like, oh, I would love to start a podcast or I would, I would love, love to, to be, creative. be creative or we're both writing books. So yeah. they're like, I wish I could write a book. I'm like, well, you can't just kind of 
do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they'll say, well, I'm not creative like that. Yes, you are. You just have to access it. Yeah. And sometimes it fades and we have to re-access that again. And so this study I thought was so interesting from 1968 mm. when they tested more than a thousand five-year-olds with a test he had developed for NASA. And these kids, 98% of them tested at a um, qualified as creative geniuses. Wow. And then when he tested them again at 10 years old, only 30% of them. So same set of kids. And then again, at 15 year old, uh, 15 years, they were at 12%. And then as adults, only 2%. So if we don't foster oh. that creativity and that, and that's what hit me, I was like, Oh man, yeah. I need to start doing it myself to be able to foster it further in my children. Yeah. Um, and but that I study that you that reference, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a reminder to us that we don't lose our creativity. It's a learned behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Whether we're doing it to ourselves or whether the systems of which we're part have right. created uh, an environment that is not that atmosphere for learning, but is actually suppressing what it is that we otherwise should be doing. Right. I, I wanted to tell a story. It's not about creativity, but it is just about how impressionable our babies and our kids are and how they look to us for what is appropriate to do and what's okay and feel safe. Um, my, my son was about six months old and he was in the crib and it was nap time and I, I was exhausted and <laughs> as mothers are at six months with the baby and he was supposed to be sleeping and he wasn't. So he was crying and I went in and I started to pat his back and tried to get him to go back to sleep and I'm exhausted and I just have my head kind of laying on the crib side on my arm and, and he looks up and sees me and he smiles and I didn't smile back and his smile dropped <laughs> and it disappeared and I think about that moment. It's wild that you remember He's that. 11 years old. I think about that moment so often and I get so mad at myself, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> I just think like, Oh my gosh, I crushed his spirit at six months old, you yeah. know? And, and just those, those kinds of things like that they're born with this joy and this love oh, and this, yeah. this creativity and this thirst for knowledge and the curiosity mm -hmm. and, and we're the ones that kind of start to damper that, you know, yeah. just, whew. well, I would say, you know, Greg and I are always very careful to not say Fred would say X or Fred would think Y. <laughs> we don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think Fred showed by example that adults need to cut themselves a break. There are going to be moments like that. But he also did say, or one of his guiding philosophies was the Quaker philosophy that attitudes are caught, not taught. And I think you just shared a prime example of that. So much of what Fred, so much of how Fred nourished curiosity and protected kids' creativity and so on, he did by modeling these things himself. So that's why we always see Fred in the neighborhood doing projects. We see him painting pictures mm. and he's cutting out construction paper and he's doing things that bring him joy and doing things that make the world a, a more beautiful, a, a safer place for his neighbors. And I think as adults, we tend to get away from that. We get crushed yeah. by the responsibilities of day-to-day -day life. We get worn down because our kids aren't falling asleep. Fred, I think, showed children that creativity, curiosity, all this stuff isn't just for kids. By modeling it himself and by bringing all sorts of creative, curious, caring adults into the neighborhood, 
he showed us that we don't have to become less creative as we get older. You know, th- these are not predetermined outcomes. We can keep that, you know, childlike sense of wonder that Fred, Fred managed to keep and project his entire life. So let me share um, a story that's entirely different from the one that you just shared. And I want to reiterate what Ryan said. You know, I've had, it's hard to introduce forgiveness into your own life. You know, I think about all of the moments with my daughters that I, if I had just done, or if I just said, right. um, And you forget the 11,000 things that you probably did really well. Right. 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 But let me take you back to the beginnings of the pandemic. Um, It's hard to even think about that now. It's silly to think that we thought, oh, this will be two weeks and then we'll be done. Um, but early in that pandemic, I went into my garage and, um, and I've shared with, with, with Ryan and others that you'd be, I'd be so embarrassed for you to see my garage. It looks like a, an episode from Hoarders. Um, and I found my old skateboard, um, and I used to skateboard when I was a little kid and I didn't put on a helmet. I didn't put on my elbow pads or anything. I just, for some reason, I just grabbed my skateboard and I went out on my street and my street has this gentle slope uh, that just goes down. And I rode my skateboard to the end of the street and I was laughing hysterically. And I mentioned this because at first I didn't realize that my daughters and then some of their friends were all like running behind me because I don't know that they'd ever... Well, they certainly had never seen a grown man on a skateboard before. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought it was hilarious. Maybe I was the weird, wacky dad. And um, and I mention this because, you know, today, eight girls on my street skateboard. Now, I can't yeah. draw a line from that moment to the fact that they do, but I, I think I sort of can. Sort of, yeah. And it, yeah. and it goes to yeah. Ryan's comment that attitudes are caught. And they yeah. saw something that I was doing full of joy and ridiculousness. And they're like, hey, I want to try that. Mm-hmm, and they yeah. tried it and they liked it. Attitudes are caught. Yeah. And I liked also about when you spoke about relationships. I know personally Simon from the library, Rafferty. Is that how you say his last name? Mm-hmm. I believe so. Um, in East Liberty in the hub. Um, a colleague in mine ha- and myself had started the Reading Warriors through NLA and Neighborhood Learning Alliance. And so we used to bring our children there all the time. Our teenagers, I call them children. They were like adults. <laughs> and Simon was just so amazing at making relationships with them. And the, the hub had just been like built. And so there was the guitars and the 3D printer. I had never seen one myself. So it was so cool. And making those spaces and making those relationships for people who don't have that elsewhere at school or at home was, was just, it was really cool to see. And I spent, um, every day in the summertime with these, with these kids. And they were just, it was interesting because we went to all the libraries. And so when the librarians would make relationships with them, it stuck more, if that makes sense. So it wasn't like they were a burden being there. Like they knew Simon loved having them there. And so then that's the one that we stuck with. And that's where we ended up spending most of our time because we were the most welcome there. I mean, we were, it was a lot of loud 17 year old, like big, tall children, you know? And, and, and I think that some people look at that and think, Oh God, please not in the library. And you just, Opening up space for them was just a beautiful thing. And I should say they did that up in uh, the hill as well. 
the, that library was a beautiful place to be as well. So, um, I, yeah, I was so excited to see his name in there and to see that you had interviewed him because I've always had such a soft spot for him because he was so welcoming to us, um, in a, in a time that, you know, lots of people didn't want a whole bunch of loud teenagers in their space. What, what he, what Simon Rafferty and his colleague Kristen Morgan are doing, this is it for your listeners who aren't familiar at the Carnegie Library. Yeah, thank you. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, there's a program called the labs, which, um, in this particular branch where Simon works, you walk in and, and like you said, there are electric guitars, there's a recording studio, there's a drum set, there's like every video game console you could ever imagine. It, it, it's a teenager's dream to walk yeah. into this kind of place. And, you know, talking with them was so instructive for us because I had this reaction of like, wow, look at all this amazing stuff that you have here. Like you can have, I could have fun for hours, hours in this place. It's just amazing the technology that they provide and the fun tools they provide for creativity and to simon and Kristen's credit they repeatedly brought us back down to earth by saying yes you know we have all this amazing all these amazing tools here the only reason any of it matters is because we've taken the time that we continue to take the time to build relationships with each kid who walks through the door there's a big difference between walking a kid into a room full of expensive equipment and saying, look what I've done for you versus walking into that room with a kid and saying, what what are you interested in? You know, let's try this together. You know, what moves you? What, what, what can I help you do that, that interests you? Those sorts of relationships they found have really helped kids curiosity blossom. And I think it's really a credit to the staff at the Carnegie library that they haven't lost sight of that, that yes, that they're, they're doing something that nobody else is doing. Um, but they know that without relationships, none of it, none of it matters. And it was safe. There was no, we weren't afraid like that they were going to break something like there. Once they realized that it was okay and safe for them to be there, it was safe. And so there was that, that part of it, because I think a lot of times you, the, Children are taught not to touch things, not to do this, not to mess with this. And if you break it, you're going to get in some massive trouble. And that is taken away once you have that relationship. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Just this morning, I read uh, a forthcoming uh, piece that'll be published by uh, three organizations, Remake Learning, Knowledge Works, and Saturday Light Brigade. Over these past few months, they've interviewed young people you know, who are reflecting upon their experience during this, this pandemic times. And these teenagers said more than anything, they're craving relationships and not just with their peers, with the adults Mm -hmm. in their lives, which as adults, sometimes that seems not obvious to us that Mm -hmm. the young people themselves are craving those relationships, but they want and need them, particularly in that environment where they feel safe and they belong and they're supported to pursue their passions and interests. I just want to take a moment. I know our viewers or our listeners can't see you, but if you are watching on YouTube, you can see Greg's shirt and he is wearing a look for the helpers shirt, which is probably one of the most famous things countrywide that people know about Mr. Rogers. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, that lesson that he taught to us. Well, in some ways, it's it's a bit sad as to why I think this this phrase has come to our our public consciousness and public culture, and that is because we, as communities and as cities and, and places, experience so much tragedy 
whether it's the tragedy of uh, arising from racism or economic dislocation or climate disasters. And so as these disasters are portrayed in the media, folks have often turned to this Fred Rogers sensibility in the quotation to look for the helpers. And it was a reminder of, of something that Fred Rogers had once shared that, you know, in a tough time, it was his mom who said, in the midst of tragedy, tragedy, look at all the other good people doing good things to try and bring safety, healing, recovery in a, in that particular circumstance. And so there's a remarkable hopefulness in times of, of tragedy to, to look at the helpers and to remember that there's goodness in humanity. Yeah, it's a reminder, I think, that I look for daily. Yeah, for sure. As things happen, you know, you lose faith in humanity. And I think that we just have to remind ourselves that it's out there. We have to look for the helpers. And I think it's also helpful to remember that that is a great phrase for comforting children uh, when bad things happen in the world, which Mm -hmm. seems to be more and more frequently. Um, there has been some interesting criticism of that phrase and re- trying to remind adults that, yes, we should tell children to look for the helpers, but we can't use that phrase to let ourselves off the hook when it comes to yeah. a better world in which in which these things don't happen or don't happen as frequently. And we, we did see Rogers doing that himself. You know, there's a very famous clip of him uh, in Washington, D.C., testifying before the Senate, trying to defend um, the funding for what would eventually become PBS. Hmm. Fred reminded children to look for the helpers, but he also stood up against the systems in which, you know, having to look for the helpers all the time became necessary. And I think that's a, it's another important lesson to keep in mind. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite things um, that drew me to him more as an adult was that clip of him testifying um, for funding for PBS man, does he say things that are so relevant now still. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it gives me chills every time I watch it. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful clip. Um, we'll try to include it here. If we can, we'll have to look at rights and so forth um, and things for that. The show has been off the air for 20 years and it debuted more than 50 years ago. Um, and like I just said, though, his, what he was saying in this, was it the sixties or seventies that he was that tested? That, t- um, for that testimony is in the 1960s. I believe it was 1969. Okay. Um, so, and, and that's still relevant today. So how, how is it? How is the show and this book and all of his principles, how is it still relevant today in 2021? One of the things that Fred says in that testimony, that the entire reason for the neighborhood and the entire reason that Fred Rogers, Pittsburgher, is there in D.C. talking to the Senate It's because he saw it as his job to give an expression of care every day to each child. That was the grounding reason for everything Fred did. It's the whole reason the neighborhood existed. It's the whole reason we're still talking about Fred today. And I think what we try to do in our book is look for digital age expressions of that. How do we tell kids in 2021? How do we express care to every child in 2021? Um, The world looks a lot different than it did when Fred debuted The Neighborhood. So what does it look like to carry his lessons forward today? Now, on one hand, the science Fred used is still cutting edge. There are are many instances in which science is just now catching up to what Fred was doing 50 years ago. 
But in a lot of other ways, like kids are growing up in different contexts now. They're growing up with different technology. Um, they're growing up um, seeing their futures differently than maybe someone who was born in 1968. Mm-hmm. So what we've tried to do is highlight in this book educators, parents, all these caring adults who are giving kids an expression of care each day, each in their own way, in some very modern ways. We're lucky, we're fortunate in Pittsburgh to have so many amazing educators like Simon, who you mentioned earlier, like Hedda Sherapin, who worked with Fred from the beginning. There are countless more that we couldn't include in the book. Um, but I think the point of Fred's ministry, and I'm going to borrow from his uh, wife's forward to the book, is that you know, all of us can do a version of what Fred did. Fred's What Fred did is still relevant because it's accessible to all of us. It's possible for all of us. Mm-hmm. And when we learn that there was a method behind what Fred did, um, it shows that we can do it ourselves and that we have a responsibility to do so uh, for the children in our lives. And if I may, I, I'll, I'll make three quick points about Fred and his relevance here in 2021 and beyond. Ryan has spoken to the accessibility of what we describe as his blueprints for learning. And as Ryan often notes, as you read the learning sciences coming out of Carnegie Mellon University or MIT, those research findings often read like the script of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. He really was ahead of his time and that work is incredibly relevant today. Two, uh, we were speaking earlier about Fred being exactly who we thought he was and who we needed him to be. And that's been cop- captured in public co- um, public culture by, you know, biography, two films. And there's such a story to tell and a story that connects right to the emotion of those of us who were lucky enough to watch The Neighborhood. And then three, uh, it goes back to the quotation that what's mentionable is manageable. And in the epilogue of our book, we quote actress Mary Rawson, who played cousin Mary Al in the neighborhood. And in talking about why we still find such comfort in Fred Rogers, she had noted this, that in the neighborhood, violence and war, hatred and intolerance are not painted out of the picture, but neither are they allowed to destroy the canvas. Mm. And I think as adults, when we look back and see that Fred recognized that Kids, even young kids, have big feelings about big issues like divorce and war and assassination and racism. Mm-hmm. Um, that he brought those hard topics and and recognized that and dealt with that, but also said we're going to paint a beautiful canvas as yeah. we deal with these things. That's a that's powerful to us, and it's incredibly relevant to us when we think about our circumstances in this day and age. Yeah. And when you talked about accessibility, um, I keep thinking about the spoon Hmm. and, um, the waiting. And those are things that I, it doesn't matter what part of, you know, life you're from, you have something like that. You have things in your cupboards, you have spoons, you have, I mean, he did a whole episode on spoons Mm -hmm. and you talk in that chapter about the, like he actually made it a thing to talk about the waiting and we don't talk about that with kids. We throw an iPad at them and we're like, okay, just be quiet, please. Just so don't embarrass me or whatever. <laughs> but instead, what can we do while we wait? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I have a really quick story about that. Cause it, it just came to me actually. Um, Daniel Tiger 
which was after Mr. Rogers, but has very similar the spin up. It's a spin up, very similar sentiments. Produced and, by Fred Rogers Productions. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so my husband pretty much raised my daughter in Pittsburgh, going to museums, doing all of these things, going out to eat and just living in the city. And um, they, when they would go out to eat, they played the game, what's missing, while they're waiting for food. And I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time. I was working at NLA. I was working as a teacher. I was, I was just never around them. So I would go out to eat with them. I'd be like, what is this game we're playing? And, and he was like, it's from Daniel Tiger. <laughs> and so like, that's just, that is a perfect example. So basically you're sitting at whatever table you're at waiting for your food and you take something off the table and you just play what's missing. And honest to God, it works like kids love it and you can entertain them for hours just by playing this simple game and not and i to me that just enveloped that idea of waiting and what can we do you know with what we have right here and so i just i really love like again the accessibility there's nothing that you have to go buy to do these things right yes it's interesting you go back to the the neighborhood as an adult um Mm -hmm. like fred mentioned fred brought hard things into the neighborhood. He brought in divorce and death and racism and all that kind of stuff. He also dealt a lot with the mundane or the ordinary mm-hmm. things that to us adults are these everyday moments that might not matter all that much. But Fred always knew that to kids, every moment matters. And so we see things in the neighborhood, like if you've seen the documentary, there's that scene where he turns an egg timer up to a minute and he just lets the camera sit on it until it counts all the way down so kids know what a minute feels like. There are scenes in the neighborhood of Fred actually watching paint dry. Fred knew that all these little moments that we as adults might take for granted or or consider not important can be big moments. Sometimes they can be the biggest moments for kids. And I think that sort of awareness is something that's really important that uh, for us as adults um, to take away from the neighborhood today. Yeah. And this takes us right back to the learning sciences, right? So let's go to Carnegie Mellon. Let's go to MIT. And what is a well-grounded principle today of those learning scientists? It's that students learn new ideas by reference to ideas that they already know. Yep. Yes. Fred knew that. That's why he took a spoon. And a spoon right, yeah. can become an opera. Right? Yeah, you yes. have to start with what's familiar and yes. then and then take it into mystery. Yes. Yes. It was so beautiful. That gave me chills. I I just, I love that. And again, as a reading teacher, the connections, they have to have some background knowledge in order to make new connections. Mm -hmm. And it just, it all came together for me. It's just a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. I connected as adult, as an adult, a lot with the um, theory of boredom, you know, Mm -hmm. in that, in that chapter and dealing with boredom. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to my, my mother lives in, in West Virginia. It's only an hour away, but we visited, um, this weekend driving back my daughter who's eight, the Riddler, um, said her phone died. So then my husband and I look at each other. We're like, Oh my gosh, it's going to be an hour of questions. (laughs) Get ready. And so she, you know, first question, what am I supposed to do? And I said, just sit there. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't understand, but what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> I said, look out the window, see what you see, and see what you see. Just sit there and en- enjoy it. And because I know as an adult, those are the moments where my creativity comes to life mm-hmm. and where I get these ideas that, you know, spark this 
bigger idea and, you know, and, and things just start to build. Cause I mean, I think a lot of people, I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty sure a lot of people get a, a lot of ideas in the shower because yes. that's a time where it's quiet. There's nothing else yes. going on and you just start to, you know, come up with different ideas or things like you, Oh my gosh, I was supposed to do that a week ago. Yeah. You yeah. know, you, your memory starts to come back <laughs> because you're freeing up your brain space from being so distracted. Yeah. And, and that's where it's like his show was so deliberately slow. I love I, it. I yeah. loved that he, he wouldn't allow more than two cuts per, what was it? Per minute? Per minute. Yeah. Yes. Per minute. And, um, I, I was blown away by this. American movies, the adra, the average, um, went from 30 seconds per minute for a, a frame. So like they would stay on a, a person's face or something for 30 seconds before moving. And now it's down to 2.7 seconds that a frame changes in Whoa. a minute. So things are just going so fast and we can't keep up with it either. Our brains can't keep up with it. And I think that's where a lot of anxiety is coming from mm-hmm. too. And yeah. this feeling of not being able to keep up and not being enough. So I just thought his whole method of slowing everything down and taking it and, and enjoying the paint, watching the paint dry, <laughs> yeah. waiting for the I timer to come is, down. This is one of those, you know, those things that we talked about at the beginning. One of the reasons why I think this book is really for everybody, because people always ask us, you know, how did writing a book about Mr. Rogers change you? I think like there's always an assumption that spending so much time with Fred will change you. And it absolutely has so in some big ways, some philosophical ways, but also in some small ways, like you just mentioned, like when I go for runs now, I, I no longer put my headphones in and listen mm. to music. I, I, I need to find, I need to force myself into those sort of quiet, still spaces where I just sit with my own thoughts. It's harder and harder to come by as things speed up. But Fred knew how important quietude and, and stillness mm-hmm. is. And it's one of those things that I hope people can take away from the book. Um, Yes, there are strategies in here for, for speaking to and interacting with kids, but there are also so many deeply personal things that we can learn from Fred that, that make our own lives better. What has changed you personally from doing this book, from writing this book? I think, well, I'll just say for me, I, we both have ever-evolving answers to this question, but mm-hmm. um, for me, for a long time, I think I assumed look, you're either a good person or you're not, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you're either Fred or you're not, you're either a saint or you're not. And what I've loved to learn about and what I've learned to love or what I've loved to learn from Fred is that, you know, becoming a good person is, is the result of a daily choice. It's the result of your daily practices and, and maybe you're great at it one day and not so great at it the next day. But Fred used to say, discovering the truth about yourself is a lifetime's work, but it's worth the effort. Hmm. And I think he's right. Every day we wake up and we decide to be as good or worse or better than the person than we, you know, than who we were yesterday. Um, Fred is a sort of shining example of that. Um, but if he can do it, we could all do it because Fred was human. He was a regular guy. He had doubts. He had challenges. He had anxieties. Um, if he was able to deal with those and become Fred Rogers, you know, what's possible for the rest of us. Absolutely. It's a bit of a job hazard to research frame, write a book like this and to be a dad as I am to be a teacher as Ryan was and not sort of check yourself and say like, yes. Oh, did I do that? Yeah. Well, am I doing this well? Mm-hmm. And I relayed this story a few times and I, and I do so with the permission of my wife and my, and my daughter some months ago, my daughter who I should note is a mixed race 
half、um, Caucasian, half Asian American. So shortly after the、um, murders of Asian Americans in Atlanta, unbeknownst to me, one night sitting in our living room,、uh, my daughter leaned into me, and I didn't know she was thinking about this. And she just said to me out of the blue, "Daddy, am I going to be shot?" Which you know, sadly, a lot of parents in this country have heard that question. I had never heard that question before, and I froze. I absolutely froze. My palms still get sweaty thinking about it, and it was as if this book came home to me, saying, "Like, okay, Greg, don't ignore what your daughter just said to you. First of all, you've got to turn to her, acknowledge it, notice what she said, make sure that she feels safe psychologically and physically, make sure that she knows that she's loved." And make sure that you talk about how you're going to figure this out together, and that maybe you don't have the answers. And I don't know that I did a perfect job in that moment, but again, it was as if that atmosphere of learning blueprint that Fred Rogers left for us came rushing home. And I think that happens in big moments like that, and in very mundane, small moments for us,、um, as happened, for example, with you and your child in that crib. Right? Like it's just a reminder of of. Are how we're responding to the kids in our lives. Maybe not every single moment, but as a general practice. Absolutely! Wow, I went took my breath away a little bit. Yeah. Oh, it just it just got me thinking about how many thousands of parents have probably heard that question, especially more recently in the last couple of years. Yeah. With the state of our country, so there's just a lot of heavy questions that children ask, and I love that you talk about just acknowledging. And I think the acknowledgement first, and then saying, I say this in my classroom all the time. I'm like, look that up. Yeah, like I don't know. Yeah, I'll ask someone who knows more than me、mm-hmm. because I want to show my kids in my classroom and my kids at home. This is how we find answers to things, right?、Mm-hmm. You know, because we don't know everything. There's no possible way for anyone to know everything, and I don't know everything, but I can show you how we're going to find the answer or how we're going to think through this problem. You know,、mm-hmm. and and I, you know, I, it's just it's just this matter of acknowledgement and not ignoring, and I think that I'm definitely guilty of that in all aspects, just for the busyness, and so I like that. I, you know, this is brought to my the forefront of my brain reading this. How I would prefer to parent and teach and just re- and even interact with adults.、Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this book is not just about children. This is about human beings and how we treat each other.、Um, with that being said, I am curious what you your favorite chapter or section might be each of you because there's so much good.、Mm. In here, how do you pick? How、thing? do you pick? I don't even know. <laughs> Greg, you want to start? I have an extreme thunderstorm moving above me, and I'm hoping by the time you're done, ah, mute. <laughs> Todd, so, I heard. I, you know, it's hard. To, I saw you, his you, lights flash. <laughs> <laughs> you've just asked us to pick our favorite child, so、um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's basically what I did. That's,、mm-hmm. That's what I heard.、Uh, yep. <laughs> you, you know.、Um, I would say I think for Ryan and I, one of the answers to that question is Chapter Six about connection,、mm-hmm. and it's not only because it's the sixth chapter of our book and it's the book that brings the book to fruition, but it was also the book that was mostly framed and written as and after the pandemic began to unfold,、mm-hmm. and、um, and shortly after the murder of George Floyd. So if you imagine a three-year project of framing, researching, and writing. 
that chapter came in a particularly tough moment. And, um, you know, to think through how we were going to bring the book to um, um, an appropriate close and then with the epilogue too, uh, during that time, it, it was just all made harder and more challenging. And I think the product, I think we're proud of the product. Yeah. You should be. It's amazing. Um, I, I think I, I probably agree that chapter six is, is my favorite. This is the chapter about uh, connection and empathy and all these things like that. But I will say, I'll always have a soft spot spot for chapter one because I'm sure you, the two of you know this, you're, you're both writing books, you are producing a podcast. When you set out on a project, the most intimidating thing is the infinite expanse of options. And Greg and I went through several drafts of our book proposal. You know, it was rejected a few times. We had a lot of wonderful help, a lot of great feedback. But once we found our framework, once chapter one started to come together, it was, I've described it as, as finding a life raft in the middle of the ocean. Once you have yes. something to grasp onto and you, you can follow that through to the end, I will always be grateful to chapter one for, for that <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is a little side, aside to that because of what you just said about chapter one. Again, I'm, and then I was also reading it from writing a book, like an author's standpoint too. And I thought, gosh, this framework's fantastic. It is. It really like is. I was like, whoa. Yeah. And I, I, that, that was part of what I was thinking as I was reading. I was like, they figured it out. Because there's, it, there wasn't a single part that was like losing my interest, but yet you kept going back and forth in a way that made all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. And so from someone who's trying to make sense of things myself, <laughs> I am super impressed with the framework that you did figure out. So I would also, that would make sense to me that chapter one would be your favorite for that reason. Well, and, um, and, and you should know that there were many, many frustrating chapter ones that came before that, that ultimately I'm ended sure. up in the recycle bin. So um, Fred taught perseverance. He taught us that it's okay to struggle and make mistakes. And we certainly yes. did a lot of that. Um, but if you stick with it long enough, hopefully you find that framework that works for you. And it probably was like our 49th go around that we found the pattern. Yeah. That is in, quite frankly, in all six chapters. I mean, there oh, is a pattern. Uh, yeah, it shows up right oh, before, I... <laughs> right as you're ready to quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually when the good stuff comes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you gotta, you gotta get to that point. But we were I... never quitting. <laughs> I like That's, it. We keep saying that. We're, we're like, we're not we're quitting either. Quitting. Mm -hmm. We're not going anywhere. We're going to figure <laughs> it out. And to that point, I think that for at least my side of the doing this podcast and producing this podcast, I feel like this is going to help. It's actually going to help us evolve a little bit because oh, yeah. our goal on this podcast is to give people but as the name, we are unqualified. We are not therapists. We don't, we don't have all the answers, but what we do have is access to people who have good tools to give us. We like to talk about like, so you're providing another tool for people's toolbox. Mm -hmm. And so each person we have on gives us just yet another tool that we believe in mm -hmm. and we're sharing it with others. And so when we talked, when you talk about in the book, how, um, Fred's philosophy was to give them the tools for learning. And if we do, they'll want to learn the facts and then use them to build and not destroy. So I feel like that's going to evolve what we do in putting those tools out there for people yeah. in, in trying to give a little bit more direction on what to do with them yeah. instead of just saying, here are the tools, 
go, you know, I don't know, just saying, here's how we can use it for good. Yes. Use them. Don't use them. It's just another option to put in your toolbox to reach for. But yeah, yeah. I just, I Thank really, you for saying that. Yeah, I mean, that. this, Greg and I always try to be clear that this is not, uh, you know, our book isn't Greg and Ryan's parenting advice or Greg and Ryan's <laughs> teaching advice. What we're doing is, is actually very similar to what you did. You know, we have an interest in a subject. We are not mm-hmm. expert parents or teachers. We are unqualified in that regard. But we, what we did have access to were all these episodes of the neighborhood, all these amazing people who worked with Fred, all these amazing people who are carrying Fred's lessons forward and these, really unique and modern ways. And they were so generous in how they shared their, their time and their insights with us. And, um, you know, we're just unbelievably grateful for the people who, uh, if didn't, if they didn't make us qualified, they made us more qualified than we were at the beginning. Yeah. This, I should have asked this sooner, but you just kind of, it kind of jarred my memory. Did you guys watch all of the episodes? (laughs) Well, in our, in our lifetimes, maybe yes, but (laughs) recently, did did you revisit some of them as you were writing? Oh yeah. And in fact, it was like Greg said, it was interesting in a lot of times to, to be watching Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Well, you know, this was most of it in 2020 when the world seemed to be falling apart on a daily basis. And to realize that, yes, there's a lot of comfort to be found in the neighborhood, but Fred didn't keep that stuff out. Fred just made us feel safe enough to talk about it. And like you said at the beginning, you know, whatever's mentionable can become more manageable. So it was um, not only a, a great project to work on, you know, I hope that we've added something of value to the world, but I, I think personally it was an honor and, and in many cases, a uh, sort of balm uh, for the two of us personally, as, as the world became increasingly difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. There are, what is it? Close to 900 episodes. Yes. More than <laughs> That's a lot. So, yeah. That would be a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really think you did. I was just, just curious. curious. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. So just like we do on every episode, we've learned so much. And I just want to ask you before we wrap up, um, what do you want the readers to take away from this book most? Maybe right now in 2021, it's refueling. Um, Everyone who, as a mom or a dad, as a teacher, a librarian, anyone who is in the caring profession, caring for kids, uh, to find in the work of Fred Rogers something that's incredibly accessible you know those blueprints for learning and the work that we can do post pandemics to create and remake learning for kids in the ways that we know we need to do so wow yeah holy mic drop greg (laughs) wow follow that ryan (laughs) not going to even attempt i agree with greg 100 (laughs) percent <laughs> that's great. Yes, that's great. It's been such a topic that Sarah and I have been talking about a lot. And I feel like when I read this, that was the framework I had too. Wow. Again, we're going to link all the places that you can find this book. Um, where, what is the preferred way to purchase it? Always, always, always the preferred way is your local bookstore. Um, But barring that, it is available in just about any other place you can buy books. Okay. Do you have a website? We do. Whenyouwonder.org. 
You can learn more about the book there. You can contact us there if you have questions. Uh, and you'll also find links to buy it at uh, various online vendors. Oh, that's fantastic. Wonderful. We will definitely link that up in our show notes. Mm-hmm. But we can't let you leave until we ask you our favorite questions. Yes. <laughs> All right. And and I want to hear from both of you, too. And this can be uh, broken up into two if you want, or you can answer it as one. But we're going to start with what makes you wild and weird? So you can tell us what you, makes you wild and then what makes you weird. Or, or you can put them together. Put them together. Hmm. Ryan, what makes you wild and weird? <laughs> <laughs> you like what I did there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we know those jokes. Makes me wild and weird. So I think what makes me wild and weird is that I'm sure I have the same insecurities and doubts and, um, you know, self-criticisms that a lot of people carry around. Um it would be hard to make it through life without, without collecting these things over time. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, to bring it back to the book, I think that studying Fred has helped me accept those in ways that are, are both helpful in how I interact with the world, but also to go beyond acceptance into, you know, Fred celebrated the things that make us wild and weird. Mm-hmm. Fred didn't judge the wild and weird in all of us. You know, in the very first episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, this was actually, I think this was, yeah, the first episode, 1968. He goes to visit his friend, Mrs. Russellite. And Mrs. Russellite's hobby is collecting lampshades, which is like maybe a wild and weird hobby to have, especially in right. 1968. Mrs. Russellite <laughs> lives alone in this big house full of lampshades. And not only does Rogers not judge her for that, Rogers walks in and he puts a lampshade on his head and he asks her, like, how did you get into this? And he's so genuinely interested. Yes. And I love the idea of, like, all these things that we are pressured to feel badly about, these things that make us wild and weird. Um, Mm. Fred flips the script and realizes, like, those things are what make us who we are. And they're not always good. They're not always positive. But they are what make us us and that should be celebrated. Um, I hope I didn't deflect, but, um, no, that's, no, that's great. Yeah. I love it. I'm glad right, that now, you're asking well, your us. turn. Follow that. I know, right? <laughs> well, well, let me just say, I'm glad you're asking us what makes us wild and weird and not asking our colleagues or, <laughs> or like a co-author. Um, <laughs> um, cause I'd be scared what he'd say about me. So the thing that makes me wild and weird is probably the same thing that makes me happy and joyful. And that is my girls. Uh, I feel like my girls have reminded me about the play, about playfulness and improvisation. Yeah. I mean, I can break out into a dance routine like Taylor Swift, um, yes. in, in a moment. And yeah. that's pretty wacky and wild. It's not something I do outside of my kitchen, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's just, um, it's the silliness, which is maybe not wacky nor wild. Maybe it should be completely normal. Um, but in comparison to my pre-child life, um, mm-hmm. it's a little wacky and, and wild and how quickly I can turn into that dead. <laughs> That's great. It's amazing. And Those it's so true. Guys. Your kids teach you how they to do. be, how to let loose and do the things you used to do as a kid. Yeah, and exactly. then, you know, I, and it, going back to the book, when you talk about how Fred gives permission for us to be ourselves. And so like when we do those things, then it gives our kids permission to do so as well. And it just, it it creates, it fosters more wild and weird kids, which we think is 
wonderful. Like that's what we are looking for in our children. Our last question. Yeah. What does warrior mean to you? I feel like a warrior is, um, well, any mom, any dad who wakes up in the morning every day is a warrior. Um, Mm. I think each of us uh, has so much work and we have so much anxiety about that work. We have so much worry about that work of being a parent and caring for kids. And, you know, maybe it's not just those parents. It's anyone who cares for kids because there's just such an awesome responsibility with that. And you know, how to do that well and to do it good and to do it day in and day out. That is hard work. Uh, and I think that's a warrior. Awesome. How about you? Um, yeah, I, I guess the word that I most associate with warrior is, is courage. And I, I heard this song the other day that, that the chorus was coolness is having courage, courage to do what's right. And I really like that definition of courage. And, and I guess by association, I like that idea of a warrior being having the courage to do what's right. And again, to bring it back to the book, like Fred was a warrior in his own, in his own gentle way. Imagine the pressure yeah, to, to, to go on TV in the year 2001 and to your thing is putting a sweater on and <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. doing the same things that you were doing 50 years ago. Like how uncool is that? And then yeah. you do it anyway. You have the courage to do it anyway, because you know, you're doing what's right. I, I think that that's, that's a warrior if I've ever seen one. Courage to do what's right. Yes. We say that a lot. We yes. feel like that's what we do. No matter. And the pushback, like you said, when you go to do what's right, you get a lot of pushback. So the courage to keep going. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you both. I just wanted to say that I am wearing a cardigan today. (laughs) I didn't even think that through. Um, I'm also hot. Like it's like, (laughs) I'm always cold. I know. (laughs) But we just want to thank you guys so much for coming on and talking to us about this book. It touched me. Um, and it inspired me. And so to be a better parent, but to be a better person yeah, and to just let myself be myself. And that's what we just try to do all the time and try to talk to our listeners about, but it's such a hard thing to achieve. Yeah. So the more things that we can learn from, the more things we can read, the more tools we have in our toolbox, the easier it is for us to allow ourselves and give ourselves that permission to be ourselves. And not just because you're right here in front of me on the screen. I want to say to all of our listeners, I highly suggest this book. It is readable. It is worth your time. The knowledge is easy to digest. The stories are so great and just weaved in um, so well. It's just fluid. And I, you know, I don't say it that often because I don't finish books that often. So (laughs) I highly, highly recommend it uh, that you check it out. It is a nice book. And to even think about it, as refueling and rest. Yes. That's, that's a nice framework to put it in. Um, so yeah, so check out their website below in the show notes and you can purchase it there. Well, thank you, Amy and Sarah. It's been a complete privilege for me and Ryan to be with you. Um, you two are warriors and we thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. We've become, you know, such big fans of of what you're doing. And now it's clear, like in talking to you that you're both actually also awesome people. So, um, you know, we're, we're big fans of of the podcast and we're, we're glad you're in Pittsburgh because we can be around to, to cheer you on. 
Yes, oh, same man. here. Right back at you. Yeah, I'm so, you know, absolutely. Pittsburgh proud. And there's so, <laughs> there's so much good stuff in this city. Yeah. That we, I kind of forget about it. And then when I was reading it too, I'm like, we have so many museums. We have yeah. so many, uh, you know, restaurants and things that we can do and, yeah. and learn. So many from. awesome people. Yes. And I have, it's been a privilege and an honor to now have met you and hopefully we know you now and we can keep in touch because you guys are great. Thank so you. thank you for taking the time to come on. And I love to, I just have to mention this because I thought it was so funny. Sure. Um, the pictures of them that you guys are going to see, I just love that we both went down and got our headshots at the same spot on the North Shore. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. So thank you guys so much. And thank you all for listening to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. Stay wild and weird, warriors. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you by Sarah Simone and Amy Baumgartner. Theme song and other music provided by Epidemic Sound. Editing and production by Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this, join our fan club at patreon.com slash unqualifiedtherapistsinc. Follow us on Instagram where you'll find our link tree to all things here at the UT. If you have a story to tell or a topic you'd like us to discuss, email us at unqualifiedtherapists at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Until next week, warriors, hold on. We're going to make it. Hey,